Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Markets suite of products at gomarkets.com.au. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. In this episode, we spoke with Damien Lowe. Damien is the Chief Investment Officer at Ensemble Capital and former Executive Director at JP Morgan Singapore. Ensemble Capital is a fund manager focused on global absolute returns through an AI and human investing approach based in Singapore. Damien is a super fascinating guy with a long career ahead of him in this new bright world of AI-driven investment. In this episode, we covered his hangover drink, insight from his time at JP Morgan and overseas, how he got into finance and trading, Ensemble Capital, the AI system, their philosophy and approach, and investment timeframes and risk approach as well. If you like the episode, leave a rating or review on your podcast app. Share with your friends by taking a screenshot and posting on your Instagram story, tagging at GoMarkets. Show notes and all previous guests can be found at gomarkets.com slash podcast. With that being said, let's get into the episode with Damien Lowe. Damien, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, I spoke to V, who was kind enough to do the, uh, the introduction to us beforehand, and I was asking him about icebreakers, and he just said, ask him about this anti-hangover drink you've concocted. Oh, so that's uh, <laughs> totally separate to my day job. Um, so I spent some time in uh, Japan, and um, I noticed that a lot of the convenience stores there were carrying this drink where uh, it was turmeric-based, and a lot of people were drinking it uh, during their big night out, and the next day reporting that they were hangover-free when really? they usually had a huge hangover if they didn't drink that drink. Um, so everybody visiting me when I was in Japan uh, said, like, wow, this is like a miracle. Why is it not in the rest of the world? So too <laughs> many people uh, kept saying the same thing. And I decided, like, hey, you know, something needs to be done about this. And so I actually worked with a chemist in the U.S. And uh, we got a grant from Singapore, the government, uh, to formulate yeah. it. And here we are. Uh, it, it was a lot of pain, though, like uh, having to uh, juggle all the logistics in terms of, like, getting the packaging from China, getting the formulation from the U.S., uh, having the 
the bottler in Malaysia. So it was quite an eye opener wow. in that sense because you know it's clearly out of my scope and out of my work experience. But it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was quite interesting. It's also like I think there's like something special to be said about having a very physical product. Uh, and seeing people enjoy it and uh, seeing it actually manifest itself in reality. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I, I know what you mean. I've, I've been to Japan and guests will probably, uh, sorry, listeners will probably know this by now because I feel like I've said it a million times, but I've been twice in the last 18 months. I'm going back again in October because I've just become obsessed with the place. And it's, it's funny those little knickknacks and, and things that you find in the convenience stores and I did notice that like the sort of hangover drink was it is massive there but also I've noticed it here in Australia in the 7-Elevens as well that it's becoming it's starting to become a thing it's still very niche but um yeah that's that's very very funny you spent a, a few years in Japan right like about five six years working there no I think it almost uh, was seven but yeah thereabouts so how I ended up there was uh, I was wor- originally working in uh, Japan, sorry, in New York uh, with JP Morgan. And they mm-hmm. decided uh, that there was a space that opened up in Japan. And uh, I just raised my hand and decided that I wanted that slot because I knew that opportunities to work in Japan are far and few between, especially for a foreign company. Uh, that distinction is especially important because, as we all know, the work culture in Japan is especially grueling if you're working for a Japanese-based company. But it's a lot less yeah. the case if you're working for a foreign company. So having that really uh, nice combination of working for a foreign company while still being in Japan was like a perfect opportunity that I couldn't pass up. What did you learn from that time in Tokyo and Japan? I think overall, like it's attention to detail it's it's something that they really take to the next level i think it's a very cliched and like an often said thing but it really like we're living in the environment itself you really see what a big difference there is uh and there it's just a different way of thinking of things overall specific examples would be as you said all the knickknacks and the convenience stores still like just uh, taking pride in your work whatever it is uh, that you do so if you order a hot dog for example in the convenience store uh, there's that package where you know you can squeeze mustard and ketchup at the same time and it mixes (laughs) it at the same time it's such a simple invention and like you don't get your hands dirty there's no fiddling around with like tearing the package open but yet it's like so simple and so amazing uh, you can go to like a sushi restaurant and there's only eight seats and then you're like talking to the chef and say, oh, you know, this is really good. You know, you should expand. And then they'll just be confused and they'll be like, why would I want to do that? Then uh, <laughs> because I'll not be able to see in person the joy on each of my customers' faces if I have a 200 seat restaurant. So it's a totally different way of thinking. You know, other people are thinking of like, how they want to make money and things like that. But for them, it's really just the pride of their work that really motivates a lot of them. I wouldn't say everyone, but I think a big part of the society. The, the vast majority. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the ultimate thing about Japan is um, as well as, as that attention to detail is um, the striving for convenience. Like it's, it's a society that is always looking for convenience, whether it's, uh, you know, packaging, 
bananas in the in the plastic bags in Seven Eleven, so you don't have to hold the banana or the you know the seat warmers on the toilet or you know everything is just done to think of what how can I make this as convenient as possible. And to your point about the the tomato sauce and the mustard at the same time, like that is just such a Japanese uh, way of doing things. I, I do love that. And I'll- it all adds up um, to like definitely a better uh, like standard of living. You no, know, not worrying about like safety or like security. Um, like having like really high level of services. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Now you uh, you've got quite the pedigree. I know you you studied more on the engineering and computer science side. Uh, when you finished up at Cornell, as you mentioned, you were working at J.P. Morgan. I th- it looks like you spent about thirteen years in total across. Uh, a New York office, Tokyo, and Singapore as well before settling to Ensemble now. I'm just curious as to what seems like the biggest insight to your time in that organization, having moved across different offices. Oh, uh, I think the biggest insight I would say is that um, all the stereotypes are true in terms of like the working in uh, the different sectors. And I think uh, mm-hmm. the big takeaway I would say is that what I've tried to do is really glean from each of the centers that I've been in, what's the best aspect of the work culture there and really trying to incorporate it in what I do overall. For example, in the US, it was a very open culture in the sense that people would be very direct in your mistakes. Uh, there would be a, a very frank and open conversation or dialogue on what, what you did wrong. There'll be a lot of heated discussion back and forth, but at the end of the day, you know, everybody knows it's just to make the processes more efficient and everybody goes home uh, still friends and like still good colleagues and good friends overall. Uh, so that's, that's something I've tried to foster overall and like uh, when I work with other people. In Japan, it's more of really uh, thinking of working as a group, you know, uh, as opposed to less of the individuality and really thinking from the customer's perspective that I think the emphasis was a lot more in Japan, especially in the work aspect that I didn't see outside of that. And I've also tried to foster that mm. when dealing with customers and also like uh, having the detail also in the product that I'm offering overall. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. And what, like Singapore, did you know what? What in particular did you learn from your time in Singapore? Uh, in Singapore, I think it's really more about the diversity part and like uh, having to be able to be mindful of different cultures. And since no one group is uh, really dominant, so it's really having to figure out how to have like a, a common platform or a common dialogue so that everybody from different backgrounds is able to work efficiently as a group. And uh, it's also really having to think on a second order basis on what's okay. If this happens here in the U S you know, how does that affect me here in Singapore and like the markets here overall? So really having to think on the second level repercussions of anything that uh, happens globally and really having a global mindset it's uh, a lot easier to ignore that aspect if you're in the U.S. or in Japan because the economies are big enough and that you don't really need to mm-hmm. uh, worry so much of what's happening in the world overall and the repercussions. You studied computer science, as I mentioned before. Why, why get into finance at all? 
So at that point in time, I thought that like uh, computer science, there's two aspects of it. You could use it uh, to obviously get into tech and use it as an industry, or you can use it as a tool and uh, to make progress or like increase your productivity in another thing altogether, uh, another industry altogether. I thought that finance was a really important industry for me to understand as a person like uh, coming from growing up in another financial center like Singapore as well. And uh, I think I also for very selfish reasons, like I wanted just to be in New York for a few years, right? Right after college. <laughs> so I think all of those dovetailed together to, to say like, hey, you know, JP Morgan's offered me a job. I don't know. 100% what I want to do, but I do know that it's like uh, this industry is something I really want to learn. I know I can uh, apply myself using my uh, what I've learned in computer science, and it's also based in New York. So it wasn't too hard of a decision that way. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely interesting. I mean, looking at your background, it seems that the real nous that you had at JP Morgan was actually trading in certain products as opposed to just building algorithms or high-frequency trading systems. Sure. It seems like you were actually in the skin of it, you know, like going after certain products and working on a certain book. So I was just curious as to how that all came about. I think um, it's a misconception that I think that a lot of people think that like to get into finance, uh, you, sh- you should have a finance background. Absolutely, it des- definitely helps and it's more applicable in that sense. But there's a lot of things you can learn on the job. And given that I was a market maker for currency options, there's so much math and like com- computation that's involved or like actually having to uh, like look at, analyze the derivatives and stuff like that, that I would argue that like having a computer science background uh, was as important or if not more important than you know, having a finance background because I thought it would just be a lot easier to learn the finance stuff of things on the job as opposed to learning about like computation or like uh, all the math and engineering aspects of it that you would have to learn from derivatives. So I think as long as you have the growth mindset and uh, the quantitative background, it's uh, easier to pick up, especially now that markets are a lot more sophisticated and it's a lot more quantitative as opposed to just the regular econometrics of just looking at uh, just an if this economic number was good, then markets should do this, and and um, so that's that's how I uh, I got into it. I think also to J.P. Morgan's credit is that they have a good training program, and uh, that's the beauty of the American system in the sense that as long as they feel that you're capable and adaptable, uh, they're willing to hire you. So I had bosses that had like were majors in history. Another one was in English and another one was in art history. Wow. So, and yet they were, they did swimmingly well in their careers in JP Morgan. So it really goes to show that, you know, if you have the growth mindset, if you have a good like platform and people to teach you, you know, uh, it's, uh, easy to transition over. I'm no Elon Musk, but you no, know, like uh, <laughs> there's a uh, he, he's another great example of that as well, right? He started out from opening up a uh, online bank uh, to obviously 
self-driving cars and also to rocketry. And he, he just has an undergraduate degree, but I'm sure he's like a super smart and like uh, has that growth mindset yeah. to really be doing all these things. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think, um, you know, if I look back at my own career, I sort of wish while I'd studied finance, I'd also looked at computer science and I'd done a lot of that stuff on the side. But I think the way that the industry has gone and, and that's been a real common theme across a lot of guests, to have that background in computer science and finance today is very advantageous. And like you said, with the right platform, the right mindset, you can go quite far with those skills, uh, or those first principle skills. Now, th- that reminds me of Ensemble. So it seems that Ensemble is a what you call a global AI fund. So you guys use man machine, sort of an investment approach. So I'm, I'm guessing you're utilizing deep learning algorithms or tools to assist traders to basically look for returns. And I, I know that the focus is wide. Like I've, I've seen on the website, it talks about currencies, interest rates, commodities, equities, options. So it seems like generally you're looking at broader market conditions as opposed to specific assets. How did this all come about? Like how did you even come across this this firm? Uh, so I... I founded the firm with an ex-colleague of mine and, and boss as well from JP Morgan. Uh, how it really came across was that given my background in computer science, uh, I had like looked at AI when I was in like undergraduate, but I knew it was woefully inadequate in, and uh, too like a uh, too young of a of a field to be really applied to like industry or enterprise level. But over the years, since uh, while I was working at JP Morgan, I, I kept track of like what was going on in the industry and in the field, and the confluence of better or much uh, faster computation from the GPUs uh, that were developed over the years, the development and the maturing of the algorithms that were used to run the, the models. Plus also the ubiquity of people uh, to actually create some of the frameworks and models, uh, all three uh, had come to a level where it was ready to implement it on an enterprise level, especially for finance. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I felt that I was in a unique position to actually try to bridge uh, both worlds. So which comes back to where using a uh, computer science as a tool or as a, as a, specific industry itself so i felt that i had the technical background to be able to understand like what uh, is realistic to be asked of from the models and also the experience in the domain itself i.e in this case finance uh to really like marry both worlds so i used my network in the tech space to really hire people with that uh, experience and we've been working together to really develop some of the mo- these models that uh, look at financial markets. So very generally, what we do at Ensemble Capital is more of as opposed to informing the traders what they should be doing is actually doing systematic trading. The, where the humans get involved is basically pointing to indicators or features or parameters that we feed into the model that we think will be useful 
for the model mm-hmm. to come up, come up with his own conclusions. And also just being there to oversee things just in case there arises a situation where we feel that the models uh, have not factored it in uh, inherently and there needs to be somebody to take over to make sure that it doesn't go out of control. Uh, that happens yeah. far and few between. And I'll give you some examples of what I mean by that. It's like, for example, if an earthquake happens in Japan, there's no way that you really model that into the deep learning framework. So somebody needs to step in to make sure that we have some hedges to make sure it uh, doesn't run out of control. Or if there's a very specific one-time event that's uh, coming up on the horizon to ensure that the model, that you have something in place to ensure that your exposure to that event is not too large. Uh, one mm. good example, which was a scheduled event, is like Brexit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's very episodic, one one time thing that that no way you can learn from like historical uh, historical references. And do you like do you focus on specific markets or asset classes? Like how? Yeah, because I I could imagine yes, the processing power um, of something like this with cloud based software through organizations like AWS is infinite. But you've got to focus that power and that that the systems that you've created somewhere. So I guess I'm curious as, as the CIO, how do you decide where to focus? Oh, so that was a fairly easy uh, decision in the sense that my background was, was in currencies and we felt that the space in currencies was uh, still not really looked at from a deep learning perspective. And from an investor's perspective, they want to see that you're doing things in what you know best about. So we felt that uh, the markets were deep enough in currencies that mm-hmm. I had enough experience to know what really drives it. Plus, it's uh, there's not much competition in that space. So we decided to focus on currencies first. Why Ensemble Capital's called Global AI, however, is that once we've shown that the models really work in this domain, there's no specific or inherent reason why we can't start to apply this to, for example, interest rates or like uh, stock indices and things that are related and you and are driven by the same kind of forces. Okay. So what then does your day-to-day look like? So how I start the day is basically looking at what happened over uh, overnight and was there any significant events that happened. Uh, I, looked at, I look at how things have moved about. I check if like all the positions are intact and uh, haven't like made or lost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And then I'll come into the office. We will have like uh, the forecast or like recommendations on the, from the systematic uh, model on how we should adjust our positions. We'll go about adjusting our positions mm-hmm. on the back of that. And the rest of the day is really of like analyzing what the model could have done better how we could try to factor in new information to the model so that it can do its job better, mm-hmm. how we can use the information we have in a different way, i.e. by using a different model or like adjusting model to make it even more efficient, and basically also communicating to investors and to potential investors like what we're doing. Because I think potential investors 
there's uh, they come in two segments. One who are really tech, uh, well-informed in the tech side, but not so much in finance or vice versa. So mm-hmm. it's really uh, deciding to put on your tech hat or your finance hat to really inform people what we're doing overall. So okay. I'll give you a specific example of like one cycle of what we've done. So for example, we were looking at the models itself and we saw that, hey, uh, it was always recommending that these few currency pairs and uh, when we saw that the forecast level was really far from where current levels are, we put on a trade. So, and that worked out fairly well, but that, that was just one strategy. Then after a lot of research, we saw that, hey, perhaps we could also put on top of that model another model that could decide what, like, what would be the best way to use those signals. So, for example, a, I'll give you a much easier example. Is So, let's say if I there was a, a game of flipping a coin heads or tails and you had... This, uh, just from the way it flips, this model, this underlying model has a good chance of telling you whether it's going to show up heads or tails, like 60% versus 40%. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you could just follow the model. And just uh, and obviously, over time, you'll make a lot of money if the model is accurate. Mm-hmm. But if you're able to use, the, uh, if you have a model above that, that is able to see, oh, you know, when the underlying model is more convicted, I should put a higher stake in the bet or like uh, increase my bet size much larger, then, you know, that starts to change things overall and like uh, allow you to achieve your goal in a quicker Uh manner. So we got inspiration from that, from uh, what DeepMind was doing with AlphaGo, Uh AlphaStar, where uh, the technical name for it is reinforcement learning, where... yeah. Uh, underlying models are deep learning where it just says that if you ask it a question, it'll tell you an answer. But a reinforcement learning mo- model is where I have this uh, game or this procedure. What is the best way or what's, what is the best policy for us for, for me to do this procedure? So it does sound like to, to, the, to the casual observer or ca- casual listener, it does, it does sound kind of crazy to have a model on a model, but it actually does make sense if you actually <laughs> go through it. Yeah, and it becomes more exponential, right? The learning of that model, because that's what the model is. You're, you're putting in parameters so it can learn and become more effective over time. And by adding that second layer, it becomes more effective in the process. I've got a whole bunch of questions now, like, you know, because I've always been fascinated by, I'm more of a value investor down the mold of Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and I, I love those sort of guys. But I've always had this career and this background in in sort of currencies and using computers for trading. And I've always also been fascinated by the likes of, uh, I think it's Renaissance Capital out of New York. It's sort of one of the greatest ever hedge funds to exist and it's sort of a, a similar essence where they're using primarily mathematical models and uh, data and deep learning to basically build a hedge fund. So the question I have now is, you know, you've got these models. Do you, do you consider yourself like, uh, do you look at things from a fundamental 
perspective or do you think that the approach for these sorts of algorithms is better to look at indicators in the market that is more technical, you know, like using charts and so on and so forth? So, uh, so our philosophy here is that there's no need to put on one hat or another. I don't need to like uh, declare to the world, oh, I'm a fundamental investor and I'm going <laughs> to ignore all the technicals and price action altogether. I think uh, we've seen uh, empirically that, yes, value investing absolutely is very important. Price action also is very important. And uh, because other people look at it, technical like uh, levels are also very important. So there's no... Uh, reason that you can't marry all these factors to make a much better strategy. So I think part of the reason why it's not been done as much before is that at some point, you know, your brain starts to max out. And like, so there's like so many things in value investing to, to learn, to think about. I'm sure Warren Buffett continues to learn. And yes, no, there's a lot of uh, good things to increase your knowledge on in each domain. So at some point, if there's like 200 indicators or like 200 things you have to look at, some in value, some in technical, some in like price action, you're just gonna, it's just a human to say, okay, I'm just gonna drop everything and just look at eight things just because sometime, at some point it's just cognitive overload. And that's the beauty of the deep learning framework is where it, it, it allows you to combine a lot of factors in a nonlinear way and to use them in a consistent and disciplined way as well. So to really combine everything and to see out of that, maybe there's some nuanced patterns to it. So for example, uh, if the price to book is less than one. And so that from a value perspective, and it's like a, uh, this co company at least, you know, requires a second look. But if sentiment in the market is uh, is really bearish, you know, you might want to wait for a while before you actually put on your investment. So, so clearly yeah. that's a very simple example. But like now, spend <laughs> that to the nth term where it looks at like 50, 50 things and like uh, it combines all this information in a nonlinear way to decide. Okay. Now I think you know, given all those factors, that it, it's good to buy or sell. Yeah, it's 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 definitely really tough um, when you go like a hundred percent value approach to run that as a hedge fund or as any f sort of fund or trading desk because it, it requires a longer term approach. So I I can totally understand that. Is the fund required to report quarterly? So are you working on a quarterly basis with most of your investments? Like what's sort of the time frame that you look for with this sort of type of fund? Or is it more like a high frequency trading fund or it's you're working on a intraday or day-to-day -day so basis? So we report to our investors on a monthly basis, uh, but our underlying trading is really just on a day-to-day -day basis. So not high frequency trading at all. Part of it is just capacity constraints in the sense that like to get high frequency data and to actually analyze, it just becomes a hardware arms, hardware arms race where, you know, who has the <laughs> faster computer, who has the shortest ethernet cable to the, the exchange and things like that. So it's as opposed to being better thinkers, it's just being faster, uh, faster investors. And that's not our competitive advantage. Uh, so we're really looking more at macro factors as opposed to like uh, flow information. And that takes uh, some time to pan out. 
So we found the happy medium to be about one week to one month. Okay. Yeah. So most of our investments or most of our positions uh, we put in are about uh, a week to a month. Yeah, it's that's definitely a good point you you made before that as well about advantages. I think that's one thing that Warren Buffett talks about regularly. You can have either an emotional advantage, a technical or hardware advantage, as you spoke about. You know, you can be plugged in directly to the exchange versus uh, day traders who are trading from home, or you can have that knowledge advantage, which it seems like in this space, this is the advantage that you would have because you are looking for the best talent and the best algorithms that can give you the returns that you're looking for. I'm curious then about how do you guys approach risk? Like earlier on, you were speaking about the fact that you have humans there for, I guess, not so much black swan events, but random events like Brexit or an earthquake in Japan. So I guess, are there any principles that sort of the listeners can learn about how you approach risk at Ensemble? I think uh, how we approach risk is uh, fairly traditional in that sense. What we do differently, though, is that we try to ensure that we try to outsource most of the most of it to the models. And I think a lot of yeah. people have this uh, viewpoint that oh, it's just a black box. No, no, I can't trust <laughs> it. But there's always that explainability versus like the. Uh, accuracy continuum. So if you want a model that's really explainable, then it's not going to be very accurate at all. But if you have something that's less explainable, just because it's looking at so many things, it's not really easy to say it in a soundbite what's, uh, why it made that decision. Yeah. And if you try to really interact with the model too much by like, you know, hedging, uh, when you just have a view and the model doesn't have the same prediction as what your view is, it's going to be really negative. And you think you're doing good risk management, but it's actually <laughs> your, the way you're interacting with a model is actually value destructive. So uh, yeah. I would say basically prepare, like try to put your heart and soul if you're like a systematic uh, investor or systematic trading person to put all your heart and soul into the model and then just let it do the work and it gives you a lot of the advantages that you alluded to like for example the emotional advantage because if you have a model and you know you've done your best to actually do it then you're going to have the advantage there you will have the analytical advantage because you know you you know you're using proprietary models that nobody else are, are using you'll have like basically mm. the framework basically of doing it every day and that really helps out yeah I think to understand the principles for the audience, I think is crucial in this regard. Um, I'm curious then, what is the what does the the next few years look like for Ensemble? What are you excited about over the next few years? I think what we're excited about is really just showing that hey, this works, and we just want to have like a decent track record. So because the proof is always in the pudding to to show people that this uh, works, and once we have that will be able to expand out to the broader and really be a full fledged as the name uh, alludes to global AI. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really excited of like being able to implement these models in like totally like a different 
asset classes and seeing it like have great success and really vindicating this approach. Because I think there's a lot of skepticism still on this uh, approach, especially the macro markets. Yeah. I think it's shown its uh, worth in equities, but it's not the case, especially here in Asia and in like uh, macro markets overall. So I'm really excited to be able to create a team build something that's uh, really interesting outside of New York and London because most of the quant funds and uh, uh, the big sophisticated funds are in those centers, but there's nothing really of uh, like note, uh, but it might just be ignorant that, uh, <laughs> that that's out of Asia so far. Yeah, well, I think I think you're right. I mean, the fact is, you guys have um, you've been in the media a lot, just looking at um, what you've been up to. And I think I think you're right in that regard. I think a global recession or some sort of regional recession is always a good proving ground for a fund. Um, so that could be an, an interesting development if that happens over the next few years, or at least if mar- markets tighten as they probably should with changes in. U.S. monetary policy, but um, yeah, I'm excited to see what you guys get up to. I know you were um, you recently part of the Nvidia Inception program, so it seems like you're up to some exciting things. I want to do jump into some rapid fire questions as we finish up. So, first one for you: what do you what does your morning routine look like? So my morning routine is basically I wake up at 5 a.m. not by choice. Uh, <laughs> Because the markets are just always moving. Uh, I do a quick run or a quick swim. Uh, it helps to reset the body from sleep mode to the active mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I basically pan through all different things that happened overnight. And then uh, I just take public transport into work, in which case I, I'll just about use that 30 minutes to basically listen to a podcast that's totally unrelated to finance or uh, so that it really helps me to broaden my horizon and I think it definitely gives me inspiration on ideas. Any podcasts of note that you've been listening to lately? Uh, I think the Seneca podcast is pretty good because I think it's uh, based on, it's a Chinese-American person. So he, uh, I think he has a little bit more of a balanced overview uh, of what's happening on both sides. So he's uh, critical on both sides and it's really I think a more fair and balanced approach, which is quite important right now. Yeah. Like Radio Lab is really good because the topics are just so diverse. Uh, and hardcore history is really good if you're stuck on a plane for a few hours and just want to know more yeah. about a random topic and happened in history. Hardcore history is brilliant. Uh, they had a recent series, which you just started, I think they're on part two, about of what, how the Japanese empire came to be through the 1930s and 40s and um, super, super interesting. Um, if you were to gift a book to the audience for, let's say, Christmas, uh, what would that book be and why? Uh, I think Sapiens. I, I thought it was a real eye-opener and on like how humans interact with each other and what things that, you might be like you you might be in a mindset that you're stuck in but it really just helps to expand your mind and see what uh where the barriers are in your life and like uh, how you can break them down and really think from a totally different perspective and uh and like how society really interacts i really like that one uh phantoms of the brain sorry if i if i could choose one more (laughs) 
by V.S. Ramachandran. So basically it shows people that uh, have some parts of their brains that have been impaired by accident and some of like uh, some of the, how it's really changed their either their temperament or the way they perceive uh, reality. And I think that's quite interesting to, to, for people who need to know how much of your character really comes from your brain and, and the physical aspects of yourself. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say that Sapien's book 100% is one of the greatest books I've ever read, by far my favorite book. Um, and Phantoms of the Brain sounds very, very interesting. Damien, we've hit just over 40 minutes. Thank you so much for joining uh, live from Singapore. I think what you're up to is very, very fascinating. And, um, you know, if people want to keep in touch with you or see what's going on, what would be the best way that they can find you? Uh, I think they can find, like, uh, they can reach out to us uh, from our website, which is ensemblecat.ai. Mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, that, that would be the best way to reach out to us uh, and to get, keep in touch. And you're on LinkedIn as well, aren't you? That's right, yes. Uh, And I'm on LinkedIn as well. So, yeah, feel free to add me there. (laughs) All right, Damien, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes. And consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening.